You're listening to a bonus episode of the On The Tape Podcast. Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan. Huge week, earnings, Fed, jobs report. Mike Wilson, seemingly getting less bearish. A lot to talk about. Later, we're going to go off the tape with Drew Shart, head of global investment strategy at Hamilton Lane. That's important more now than ever, Dan. Yeah, no, we had a great conversation with Drew. And it's interesting, Guy, you and I spent a lot of time talking about equity markets and the things that affect it. I know you in particular have been highlighting all year long what's been going on in the credit markets. And if we really are to see a major downdraft, I think, in the economy, which would be reflected in the stock market, we're likely to see some kind of issues in the credit markets. We haven't seen it just yet. I think Drew's take on the public credit markets with what's going on in the private credit markets, where they're primarily focused on really interesting stuff there. So definitely check out that interview with Drew. Guy, the one takeaway for me, Mike Wilson, he was on our podcast on the tape a few weeks ago. He was still pretty bearish. This was before that market, uh, the stock market had turned on that Thursday afternoon. Remember, we had that new 52-week lows. Things felt really ugly. And then we had that intraday reversal. That Monday, Mike comes out. And basically says, I think we could have a tactical rally. What did he say? 10 to 20% possibly. You had been saying, we think you thought you could have at least a 10, 15, 20% rally, maybe back towards 4,100. So that lined up a little with you, but he's changing his tune now. He thinks inflation has peaked a little bit, right? And maybe the rate hikes have basically, they're going to be done when we're done with 2022. Thoughts on that? Well, we talked about it was October 12th was a Wednesday. We talked about it that week, how the setup those couple days looked eerily similar to what we saw back in the middle of June. And we thought we could see a 15% rally. Actually, we set up to 4,000. Maybe we overshoot and effectively here we are. So Mike Wilson, is he changing course? I don't want to go that far, but I agree with him. I think we probably have seen peak inflation. I said that back when we saw the 9.1% CPI print and that proved to be true. What I've also said, and you know that, is inflation will be the other two PEs, which is pesky and persistence, and I think we're seeing that as well. I think a lot of people will say, okay, the Fed's going to stop. That's got to be bullish. All systems go. And the market will rally on any indication that that's the case, but the reality is earnings are still slowing down, and there's still significant headwinds. And by the way, the Fed rate height cycle still has a lag effect. You're going to be feeling that for quite some time. So yeah, the market will breathe a collective sigh of relief. I happen to think it'll be somewhat short-lived. Yeah, you know, let's take a quick wrap, though, of the earnings last week. I think when we went into that week, we knew that Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, all reporting. And you know what? To be very clear, four of the five were a disaster. Apple's commentary, the only stock that traded up after its earnings, which was on Friday, okay, they traded up, I think, 7% at its highs. It wasn't even that good. And and the guidance wasn't that good. Stock's down 2% today on a story that continued China, uh, you know, COVID lockdowns is going to hurt iPhone production here. So the stock's down 2% or so. I think keep an eye on these names. Meta, okay, is down 3% today. It's trading below its lows from last week. Microsoft, you know, has bounced a little bit off those lows, but today down percent and a half or so. If those stocks were to make new lows from last week's, you know, post earnings lows, watch out below. And, you know, you talk about where your target is to the upside in the S&P. Guy, I got it right here at 38. 67. Okay. So if we were to have the same sort of move that we had off of the June lows to the August highs, you know, that was about 18, 9% off 
off of the lows that we just had a couple weeks ago on October 13th, you get 18%. That puts you just below, I think, about 4,100 or so. We're still a ways away from there. That's why I'm still focused on those big tech names that disappointed and gave bad guidance because if they are – to make new lows. What is that saying that you say, Katie, and you don't know she who she is? I don't know who she but, is, and I don't but, know what door she's watching, but yeah. she better bar that SOB, That's as they exactly. say. You know what? I, I will say that, you know, I said it on Fast Money last week when they reported that the Apple quarter, I think people were looking at it as a flight to safety on the back of a miserable Amazon quarter. And I said one of the reasons why Apple's probably not lower and actually is now going higher is because it's exactly that. It's been this flight to safety, this perceived flight to quality. And the Apple quarter, to me, again, to use the word reminiscent, reminded me of the Microsoft quarter a couple of quarters ago when Microsoft initially reported the knee-jerk reaction was lower. They made some constructive comments. The stock was off to the races. And Apple, to me, is exactly the same thing. You know, you saw a quarter that was okay at best. The guidance was not great. But then you saw, again, this perceived flight to quality. I think it's going to be short-lived. You know, I'm not some Apple bear. I don't really care one way or another. It just feels somewhat contrived to me, that move from the lows of about 138 or so in the post-market to levels we're seeing now. Yeah, so real quickly um, on the Fed, right? So that's going to be Wednesday. I think CME Fed Fund futures are pricing a very, very strong likelihood of a 75 basis point hike and then a 50 po basis point hike um, in December. I know that, again, going back to Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, he thinks that the rate hike cycle might be uh, ended after December. Goldman's uh, strategist, Heitzis, uh, Heitzis, is that how you pronounce it? Jan Hatzius. Hatzius. He's suggesting that we might see quarter uh, point hikes uh, in Q1, maybe a couple of those but again i mean i think you know that's getting towards the end of the cycle do you think when fed chair the honorable fed chair powell guy steps up to the mic on wednesday afternoon do you think he already knows what that october jobs report is yeah th there's obviously you're leading me down a primrose path yeah, and i'm not exactly i'm sure that has something to do with shakespeare because if you don't know it typically does but i you know i maybe he has some inkling of what it's going to be quite frankly um i'm not sure it's going to matter one way or another it's all going to be about the tone and some of the words he uses or more importantly chooses not to use and again you know if the fed was to go on if they're going to slow things down if they're going to pause whatever it is that will again be perceived as bullish, oh yeah, the Fed's back on our side, but don't get ahead of yourself here, folks. I mean, we're still in an earnings slowdown. We're still in a margin compression, it seems to me. Prices are still elevated. There's a lot of work to be done here. And you have to ask yourself, what are we getting bullish on the back of? If it's just on the fact that the Fed may slow things down, I don't think that's good enough. All right, so let's talk about interest rates here because the ten-year, yeah. which had dipped below, um, you know, four percent, um, is a back above it, and it's just interesting to me. We still have a two-ten spread that's uh, inverted by forty-five basis points here, and you know, on a day like today, guy, where you know yields are not even up that much, the ten-year's up, I don't know, three basis points or so. Look at what's going on with home builders. You know, Toll Brothers is down four percent, Lenar's down two and a half percent, related names are down a couple percent. You know, um, you know, Worldcom. Masco's gotten killed um, of late. Talk to me a little bit about yields and, and kind of how you see this playing out. If we are 
towards the end of this rate hiking cycle here. Don't you think that we would see the 10-year now better reflective of maybe slower growth, which would see it coming in a bit, maybe yeah. down towards 3.5%? I thought that for a while. It's been wrong now for a while. I mean, if you think about it, I know you know this, 10-year yields went, I think, almost to 4.3% or thereabouts. Obviously, you saw a pretty steep reversal, and I'm shocked that they still have a forehandle. You know, in this environment, especially if what we just talked about for the last seven minutes is true, if this Fed is somehow going to slow down, you should see a backup in yields. And what does that mean? I think the 10-year moves lower because we're still in a slowing growth environment, not only here, but around the world, by the way. So that should theoretically drive yields down, and there should be some sort of flight to quality in the form of 10-year yields here in the United States. So I'm really surprised they're as sticky as they've been. But I'll say this, you mentioned about 45 basis points inverted in the twos, tens. I still think that's going to get significantly worse, meaning get more inverted to the tune of anywhere between 75 basis points, potentially to 1%. And it probably comes in the form of, to your earlier point, three and a half to 375, four and a half-ish in the two-year. And, and that, to me, again, you can be as bullish as you want, but that does not paint a pretty picture, in my opinion, Dan. Yeah, and we also obviously got to keep a track of the the dollar, the U.S. dollar index, the Dixie, which almost got to 115 um, again mm-hmm. a year ago. Guy, this was 94. A year ago, the U.S. dollar index was 94. It got as high as 115-ish or about 114.5 or so um, at its highs in September. It checked back a little bit, back below 110, but it seems like it kind of bounced off of you know that kind of long-term uptrend. So that'll be interesting. The other one, you know, last week we started after the the Communist Party in China, you know, President Xi is, you know, again, uh, he won an election guy. He's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. going to be, you know, premier uh, again here, uh, a president, you know, and, and Chinese equities got killed and then it had a nice little bounce, but they're back now, man. If I'm looking at the FXI, that's the iShares, you know, large cap China ETF. And I bought calls and I talked about it a little bit on market call. Look at that thing. It's making new lows right now. And again, is that on the heels of kind of COVID lockdowns, continued COVID lockdowns? I think that's exactly what it is. And they can be more draconian now because, again, his yeah. power base seems to be solidified. And, you know, I think there was some not concern. That's the wrong word. But I think there was some thought that perhaps with the zero COVID, he was somehow compromised. Well, that proved not to be the case. And I'm not surprised by it. And my concern all along has been, again, with in terms of the Chinese, when you're when your opponent and I'm using the word opponent can, is playing a 50-year game and you're playing a five-minute game, which we typically do here in the United States, almost by definition, you can't win. When your opponent is willing to lose battles to win wars, you're, all, you're defeated before you even start. And I'm surprised, in my opinion, that really hasn't manifested itself here in the United States. You know what's really interesting? When you talk about your opponent and you talk about playing a game, a long game here, you know, yesterday, we're recording this on Monday, yesterday, the Seattle Seahawks playing the New York football Giants, they only had to play play a 50-yard game for a bunch because Mm -hmm. your Giants and the special teams were an absolute disaster. They're just coughing up the ball, giving them the short field, and it was kind of over. So again, they had to play a very nice short job. game. On that I one. like what you, you did there. I love the fact that you went to sports before I did. I mean, my want <laughs> is to go there immediately. I'll say this. Um, Seattle beat the Giants yesterday. I mean, those two turnovers did not help 
Uh, and that kick returner slash punt returner probably will not see the field of play again, at least not in a giant uniform. That said, the offense didn't do that all much when they had the ball, and the only time they really scored a meaningful touchdown is when they recovered a fumble on the two-yard line and went in. Thank you, Saquon Barkley. Daniel Jones was mediocre at best yesterday. They still don't have anybody to throw to. As a matter of fact, I just got a call a few minutes ago from the Giant organization asking if I'd be willing to try out for their wide out spot. And I might do that later this afternoon after market call 1 p.m. Eastern time, by the way. But we're still six and two going into a bye week, a record that nobody thought was possible, Dan Nathan. By the way, the Rangers did win yesterday in Arizona. Back to you. Yeah, matter of fact. And then by the time oh, you listen to this. By the way, since you went down this road, yeah. all you yeah. Jet fans, oh, we're going <laughs> to throttle the Patriots. It's our time. You got embarrassed. Yeah. Embarrassed. At, at home, at Giants at Stadium. Home. At Giants Stadium. So, um, all right. Well, we did that. Um, so, I just wanted <laughs> you're, to. You're, you're not happy. See, you, you went down that road and you're like, this is probably well, listen, a mistake. You know, guy, it could be a mistake. I like these uh, bonus episodes that we do, the eye connections, the off the tape segment. They've provided us with some fantastic guests. Drew Shart, which we learned after the fact, was a Cornell lacrosse player. How about that? Yeah, the the I think they call themselves with the Big Red or something. They're I'm sure Rafis will know what the hell their yeah. name is because <laughs> Rafis probably got throttled by Cornell during his time at the Q's. Back to you. Pro- probably a couple times. All right, so big week. By the time you're listening to this, um, you know we will kind of be in the mix of some more earnings, some of your biotech, healthcare name guys. Then we're going to have that Fed meeting on Wednesday, the jobs report on Friday. It could look like a very different market by Friday. Friday afternoon guy. You know, it's interesting, and we'll end it on this. Typically, good news is good news. You get good news in the form of jobs on Friday. In other words, unemployment stays low and you added job. That's not, I don't think the market's going to like that all that much, and we'll see. So this week is going to be a fascinating, given the fact, again, that we've rallied, I think, close to 10% in the S&P from the lows-ish. So much to look at this week. And it's, to me, it's so interesting to see how the market reacts to this stuff. So Right now, a little squishy. Today's a long day, uh, but I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm really going to enjoy the conversation with Drew Shart in just a few minutes, Dan. Yep, so stick around. When we come back, our interview with Drew Shart, Head of Global Investment Strategy at Hamilton Lane. Drew Shart is the Head of Global Investment Strategy, Co-Head of Investments, and Co-Head of Direct Credit at Hamilton Lane. In his roles, he is responsible for shaping strategic portfolio decisions across Hamilton Lane's various investment strategies and product areas and overseeing credit-related investment activities. Prior to joining Hamilton Lane in 2008, Drew focused on principal investing and advisory activities while at TCG Advisors, an aerospace and defense-focused merchant bank. Drew, welcome to On the Tape. Drew, so welcome aboard. So what we like to do is obviously just give us a little bit of a primer as to Hamilton Lane, your journey, and you know what you guys and gals are doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me. Really appreciate being on. Um, Hamilton Lane, we like to say, is the, the biggest company you've, you've never heard of. Um, we are a publicly listed company, um, but all we have focused on for 30 plus years now is investing in navigating and help our clients understand this realm of private market investing. So private equity, private credit, private real assets. Um, I've been at the firm for just about 14 years now. I had a 
what you call a sort of traditional financial services track, started in investment banking, worked in private equity and private credit, and then came to Philadelphia where we're headquartered. And uh, when I started, you know, we had under $10 billion of AUM in three offices. And today we have something like $850 billion of assets under management and supervision, all focused again in that private realm um, and 21 offices globally. It's a global asset class and, and so are we. And personally, I am the firm's co-head of the investment platform. So really oversee the management of the teams, the strategies, and all that we do to help our clients find their way through this uh, area of private market investing. It, it's interesting. You know, obviously, Dan and I, if you, to the extent you watch Fast Money, we're clearly focused 99% of the time on equities, sometimes little commodities. Credit comes up, but credit is sort of the backbone of everything. Can you speak to that? Because I don't think people fully comprehend the importance of credit in terms of what it does for equities, commodities, and global economies for that matter. Yeah. If you look at, you know, your standard sort of company or purchase, especially in the private realm, you know, the most significant part, anywhere from 50 to 60% of the purchase price or structure is credit. It is debt. Um, and you think about even just extrapolating that to buying a home. When you buy a home, you put in 10 to 20% of equity. What's the rest? It's a mortgage. It's credit. Um, and so if you look at that, if you look at the size, just take the public realm, the global, you know, world equity market cap is, you know, roughly, you know, over a hundred trillion dollars. If you look at the amount of global debt outstanding, it's multiples of that. And so I think you're absolutely right that it is the backbone of the financing and deal landscape in most areas. And it also is what helps generate outsized returns. If you can use debt to help generate better equity uh, profile returns, if you do it in a prudent way, if you do it in a way that is considering all the, the macro factors and volatilities and risks that come with utilizing debt. Well, let's talk a little bit about those macro factors. You think about the last three years, you know, with the start of 2020, um, you know, it really felt like all systems were go as it relates to just how, you know, our economy was humming, capital markets, and then we have this black swan event. And and I'm just curious as, as you know, at Hamilton Lane, how you guys think about that, because a lot of people in the first half of 2020 were really concerned about some sort of credit crisis, right? When you have that sort of event and you don't really understand or no one really knows how it's going to play out, but things were okay. And why were they okay again? Well, we just had this coordinated central bank intervention to avoid that. Talk to us though, here we are kind of on the other side of that. And to Guy's point, you know, if you're an equity investor and you're thinking about, you know, kind of the, the reorientation of rates after that period, you know, the worry is that there's some sort of hiccup in the credit markets right now. And that could be the thing that maybe kind of turns this bear market that we have in equities into something maybe protracted um, and, and really kind of spurs on maybe, you know, a, a bear market that um, is, is longer than many people might think or might hope for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the last pretty much 14, 15 years, everything has been up and to the right, right? It's been low interest rates, lots of liquidity, whether you're talking about the public or the private markets, pretty sort of steady sailing for most asset classes. And frankly, that's one of the things that looking internally keeps me up at night. Half of our workforce has been hired in the last sort of five to 10 years. And so they've never really lived through a cycle. The more senior people have, 
but bringing to life a little bit of the points you mentioned, you have a lot of those tailwinds suddenly in the course of eight months and pretty suddenly those tailwinds have become headwinds, not to mention geopolitical risks, uncertainty, volatility. And what I would say is as private asset managers, um, this is what we get paid for to help manage and navigate times of increased volatility, because it's this back to the psyche of the investor. The absolute worst time to lean in is when everyone's sort of greedy. And and the best time to lean in is when everyone is fearful. And you've certainly gone to that more fearful, more risk on sort of risk off metrics in terms of investing and navigating the investment sphere. And so I think that we have to all be cognizant that this isn't likely to change anytime soon in terms of there is going to be more market volatility. There is going to be continued uncertainty. And so as an investor, I think it puts the importance on back to instead of, you know, top down underwriting, really a bottom up focus by, you know, whether it's public or private, whether it's the geography, whether it's the sector you're investing in, in our world on the private side, a huge differentiator is that it is not an efficient market information and access is not created equal. And so you have to find, you know, Blackstone likes to say, and I love this, the good neighborhoods in areas you've invested in before, assets you have familiarity with, because it is going to be more of a thematic deal pickers market today and going forward than it's been at any time over the last 15 years. And I think investors are trying to take stock of all those different components. Well, it's interesting you say that, Drew, because I would imagine prior to November of last year, when the market effectively just does nothing but go higher, albeit a couple of situations notwithstanding, you guys, I'm sure, do very well, but it's very hard to differentiate yourself in that environment. And people probably are not necessarily looking for what you do because everything's great in the equity market. My sense is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, though, over the last seven, eight months, this has been an opportunity to really show the non-correlated asset component of what you're doing and how you can sort of rise above some of the noise we've seen effectively for the last decade and a half. Absolutely. I think you've seen the correction happen first in terms of asset prices within the equity markets. Um, And you've also seen even recently some volatility on the public credit side, which was a phenomenon you hadn't really seen in quite a while. They're usually discorrelated those two areas. Um, But to your point, what investors are thinking about is in the new normal environment, yes, equity valuations have come down. And at some point, transactions will start to occur back at that new normal valuation. But it brings to light or highlights the benefit of inflation resilient strategies. So things like private credit, things like real assets in terms of infrastructure and real estate, we've seen investors in our world on the private side really pivot and put more dollars to work in those areas. And frankly, it's been happening over the last 10 years in the world of credit because you've had since the global financial crisis, banks and traditional lenders pulling back, and it's given rise to all sorts of new lenders. That said, this is when you find out who the sort of real leaders or bellwethers are versus sort of the also rands who are just trying to raise capital around an industry or market trend. And so back to it's going to come, there's going to be more delineation of outcomes, whether you're talking about deals, strategies, or managers over the next three years than we think that there's been 
pretty much over the past 10. Drew, give us a sense of, of who um, a Hamilton Lane um, client is, uh, and, and you know, so so from like the investor base and then also uh, the size of private credit versus, let's say, uh, you know, listed credit, like, uh, you, know, you know, public credit markets. Yeah. And so, uh, so first, who is Hamilton Lane Investors? We hope it, it's, it, that's our whole point as a firm is to expand access to this sort of black box historically of private market investing. And so our firm started out with, you know, some of the largest pensions, uh, endowments, institutions, sovereign wealth funds. Those are the more traditional institutional uh, investors in the private market, i.e. they've been around for decades. They're relatively familiar with this. I think where the puck is going, so to speak, is in this newer area of high net worth, individual, more retail oriented investors who see the great returns that have come from different areas of private markets. Now more flavors and strategies in private market investing. You talked about private credit. And so that is sort of the newer channel this this excuse me retail client uh, high net worth individual investor where product strategies and structures are now accommodating more seamless access for those investors who historically have had limited or no exposure to the private markets and i think your question about the size of private credit you can extrapolate that to the private markets as a whole so to give you a sense and put some numbers around it the entire nav the net asset value of everything in private markets. So equity, credit, real assets, it's about $7 trillion. Um, That amount has sort of quadrupled over the last sort of 10 or so years. And if you compare that to the global world market cap, equity market cap, you're talking about about 100 trillion plus. And so while it has grown significantly at $7 trillion, it's still relatively small compared to the world that everyone's used to, public equities, public credit realm. Within private credit, you're talking about probably you know 10 to 15% of that NAV being in private credit. And that's been one of the more rapid growing areas that we've seen across strategies. It's interesting. We talk about valuations a lot. And in public markets, you know, valuations, I don't want to say they're easy to determine, but obviously the market determines it for you to a large extent. Private world's entirely different. And, you know, everybody seems to think that despite the fact that valuations are going lower, my company or my entity or my whatever, you know, I I am impervious to that. It's a difficult thing. How do you have those conversations and determine valuations in an environment where a lot of people don't want to accept the reality that's going on? I mean, that's a $64,000 question, sort of what is it worth? You private market guys are and girls are full of baloney. The public markets are down 20%. And here you are telling me at June 30th and probably at September 30th, you're going to be flat to down 5%. There's got to be funny math. There's something else going on. That's the way that this sort of skepticism goes. And let me say one thing. So the private markets are correlated to the public markets, period, full stop. So the two, if you look at how they move, they move in tandem, but there's more muted volatility in the private markets. And if you look at why that is, it really comes down to two fundamental components. The first is purchase price multiple. If you look at the data, historically in the buyout landscape, so the equivalent of a public equity investing landscape, more mature private companies, the investors in that buyout world in the private side have bought their companies 
at about a 20% discount to the multiple that the same company that was publicly listed was trading at at the time they entered. So in other words, there's more of a cushion because you started at a lower entry multiple um, than, than where the public comps are. So when those public comps come down 20%, in theory, they're at the same multiple you bought in at. That's part one. Part two is just this. Private markets have a better governance structure. And what I mean by that is when we buy these assets in the buyout realm, again, talking using that as an example, you control the company. You control the asset. You are buying the company today knowing you're going to have to live with it in our world, which is less liquid. You're going to have to live with it for five or six years. There's going to be uncertainty. There's going to be volatility. And so when you control the company, you control the board, you control the alignment of incentives with employees, you control the strategic direction, you control when you buy, when you sell, how much leverage you utilize. All of those factors are dramatically different than the efficient public markets, where you control none of those things as a sort of passive investor. You don't know whether the stock price is going to go up or down. And so what I'd say is most private market investors are thinking of the world where they know the price multiple is probably going to decline from what it's been, given how toppy things have been. And so what are the other levers of value creation? You have to have a plan. You have to have a thesis and strategy about creating value value in a way that's not just buying low and selling for a higher price like you would count on in the public markets. So so help us out a little bit. We're the dumb fast money guys here, Drew. Um and you're dropping you're dropping knowledge here on on, you know, obviously on private debt. There were two big deals this year that were things that made it into kind of our universe because we were talking about it. Obviously the Citrix deal, okay, and now Elon Musk buying Twitter. And and the headlines, you know, yes, they were kind of around valuation a little bit and how valuations change with the interest rate environment, um, you know, with, with a whole host of things changing since these deals were announced in the spring. But the focus as we got to the close of these deals was the credit, was the, was the debt, right, to do these sorts of deals. Give us a sense for how these two deals are going to shape, you know, just basically the way buyouts are going to happen, you know, in this environment, because it looks like the banks that agreed, right, to kind of provide the debt are wearing, you know, this to the tune of what maybe billions of dollars lost here. So talk to us a little bit about what's going on this year and how unique that is in your professional experience over the last, let's say, 10 years. I mean, that's a, a great point. And I think no question back to the earlier comment, everything was sort of going up and to the right. And so underwriting, lending standards, the banks being willing to lend the capital a lot of liquidity, you've seen now how fickle public markets can be when things go in the other direction. Some of those deals that you'd mentioned uh, are good sort of case studies for that. I won't pretend to get in the mind of Elon Musk and, and boy, that would be interesting. But I think a big part of the impetus potentially why he wanted to move forward is he had debt financing arranged. And if he sort of pushed things down the line and that public debt offering that he was agreed to went away, that becomes more expensive in terms of financing. Um, and so this is where the private landscape, I think, frankly, takes advantage of opportunity and volatility. We estimate there's somewhere between 40 and $50 billion of hung paper, what you described, sitting on these banks' balance sheets. This is the time private lenders, private debt, direct lending, love to lean in because when your biggest competitor, the public lending markets, shut down 
or shut off or inflows stop. That is when you can get better spreads, better interest rates, returns, in addition to better loan documentation and, and terms to protect you as a lender. And you're seeing that play out. And even in transactions, I think a part of the financing solution for some of that hung paper will ultimately be the private capital, the private credit providers that can help solve some of those challenges uh, that sit on the bank's balance sheets today. On a side note, I watched somebody hang paper in my dining room. That is a pain in the ass. Like, I don't know how people do that. They line up the patterns and stuff. I mean, that's well beyond my pay grade. I digress. Drew, here's a question for you. Um, historically, credit's the deep end of the pool. Private credit, I mean, that's sort of like, you know, that you're you're a few hundred yards out to the ocean and you can't really see land. But at a certain point, you know, the retail investor has gotten themselves up the learning curve. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a group you're looking to go after, but it's just a matter of time before I would imagine the retail investor finds their way into your um, into your vertical. Can you speak to that? Yeah, we hope so. And I, and I think this has been, and it's a broader challenge, frankly, with the retail market in general. And it's a challenge created by us, the private market industry. We have been a black box people don't understand. So what I would say to you is, what you want to give the retail individual investor is what those institutions have gotten. First and foremost, great and consistent returns and better returns than you could have gotten in the public market strategy. But the other part of it, and it's almost equally important, is just education, understanding the landscape and understanding the space. And so what I think most investors generally don't understand is if you look at the numbers of private companies versus public companies, for example, companies in the U.S. that have $100 million of revenue, there's 10 times the amount of private companies compared to public companies. And the companies are all shapes and sizes. And so the other myth is this private market stuff, it's much riskier. The companies are all small. They don't have profits. That's not the case. If you look at where the majority of private lending is happening, it's happening to companies that have greater than 50, 75, $100 million of earnings. So these are real sizable businesses that have just chosen to stay private companies for longer. That's a trend that has occurred since the early 2000s where the number of public companies is shrinking, the number of private companies is increasing and they're staying private for longer. That's partially because this ecosystem of financing, particularly around credit financing, has evolved. And so a lot of the landscape is lending to those private companies. They do have size and scale. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's only a matter of time before investors on the more retail-oriented end of the spectrum do what the institutions are already doing, which is focus their traditional public fixed income dollars, take slices of that, and put it into this um, less liquid but generally attractive risk return proposition in private credit. So that's kind of it's a great point you just made, Drew. And it's funny because, you know, at least when you're a pundit or, you know, you, you're just obsessed with the sexy stories, right? Guys like Adam Newman and, and his ability to raise, you know, billions of dollars, whether it be here or overseas and in a very dilutive sort of manner. So when you talk about some of these companies, you know, for the, there's multiples of, of, of profitable private companies relative to these money burning, you know, VC machines, you know, that sort of thing. So, so you really do have this, um, you know, investable um, group 
right? That that are just with with take it to the bank, you know, cash flows. I mean, what what is this obsession that we have with these kind of like sexy VC backed, you know, kind of um, you know, like the cult of CEO personality, that sort of thing? And is it something that you guys just avoid altogether? I, that's such a great point because I think you hit the word on the head that I was going to use. It's sexy. It's fun to anecdotally talk about the deal I did and I was in this round early. The reality though is venture, it's an attractive space. It has a, a purpose and you've seen that over the last sort of five to seven years where that by far has been the best performing strategy in the private markets. But collectively, it's less than 10% of the asset class. So even though it's in the headlines, it's popular to talk about, it's popular to write about, or talk about the last deal you did, it is a relatively small part of the, the most investors' private market exposure in portfolio. Um, and I also think it, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you can have great success stories, but what is the riskiest of all the strategies, right? It's the venture world. It's where, you know, generally speaking, you're doing 20 to 30 deals Two or three of them are going to be the home runs that you want to write about and talk about. The other are going to be, you know, the dregs of the portfolio that don't quite work out. And there is a much broader equity-oriented landscape that is, you know, the middle of that. It's it's sort of more stable, consistent, risk-adjusted returns where, um, you know, it's not as sexy or, or fun to talk or write about, but it's where the lion's share of the capital is going and where the lion's share of the investment investable landscape is for most investors in this private realm. So are you starting to see a bit more, I'm seeing it written about a little bit, you know, companies that raised at big valuations over the last couple of years, we just talked about marks, right? So a lot of these companies don't want to do down rounds and you're hearing more about private debt. Are we going to see this in a bunch of, you know, money losing VC backed, largely tech and consumer oriented companies? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And there's a lot of there's a couple components to it. So I'd start with this, the fundraising environment for a lot of venture capital and growth oriented firms has been a good one for the last five years. So they have a substantial amount of what we call dry powder. So cash that is yet to be invested. So that would imply they can continue to support their existing positions and businesses. The other part of it, though, is this is an area where a lot of these companies that had gotten big deals, up rounds, et cetera, that all happened in the last year or so. So the current sort of cash runway, if you will, is likely to extend through 2023. The interesting part is the question you asked, which is what happens when the rubber meets the road? And there's still a lot of uncertainty on the macro side, but if things can continue to trend more negatively from a macro perspective, these companies are running out of cash, there's this buyer-seller disconnect of, as someone who was in the last round, I want to raise and don't want to have a down round, but I know my company needs capital to survive. So usually what happens is exactly what we, we see now. The transaction volume and amount of capital and flows slows or stops dramatically for a period of 6 to 12 months. And then as those businesses come to the end of that runway, I think you're going to start to have to have some interesting or difficult conversations if the world hasn't changed, if you aren't a profitable growth company, I think that's going to be the delineating factor for venture and growth. Have you, have you been pursuing growth at any costs or have you been pursuing growth with profitability and some level of you know, cost discipline in mind? And that ultimately may win the day in that, that world of venture and growth investing.
So let's bring it back to Hamilton Lane and where you're seeing opportunities. Obvious, well, that's nothing is obvious to me, but I would submit that the opportunities present themselves and things that have been beaten up and where you can sort of swoop in and, you know, and I guess in the public world that would fall under the sort of the auspices of technology, you know, big cap, uh, high valuation names and maybe <clears throat> opportunities in the energy space is not as abundant. Can you speak to that? What are you looking at and, and where do you guys and gals see opportunity? Yeah, a lot of where we're seeing opportunity are in areas not only that we've invested in before, so we know or have a playbook with our partners in terms of the thesis, how we're going to create value. Uh, we've done a lot in the sort of logistical services space. It helps to have incumbent position, know the industry and the players, um, the healthcare space, the recurring software space has been just to name a couple sectors, some more thematic areas that that we've been playing but I think importantly, you're right that there's also opportunity in a down market and the private lenders and the private investors know that better than anyone that you can get the same high quality asset that, you know, last year was trading at 15 or 17 times today for maybe 12 or 13 times. Once that buyer seller disconnect starts to abate or the downward pressure continues, this is where you see traditionally vintage years coming out of a downturn tend to be the ones where the private markets outperform the opportunity cost or investing in the public markets. That gap is the widest in these types of vintage years. It doesn't mean that returns aren't going to come down on an absolute basis. I think they will, whether you're talking about public or private markets. But I'm saying that the relative outperformance you get from the private side tends to be heightened in a more pedestrian public market return environment. And I think you're starting to see that in terms of the pipeline of opportunities and the pricing as deals start to happen again, uh, post downturn. All right, before we get out of here, just curious, what, what, what's kind of the house view at Hamilton Lane on just the macro in general? You know, it's been, you know, almost every risk asset on the planet has been going haywire. And in some ways, our world, you know, if you look at the S&P 500, that seems to be one of the more stable sort of risk assets out there. But just the, the move that we've seen in yields and what that's meant for the credit markets and commodities and currencies, it's been, it's been, it, it's felt like, you know, a decade versus of activity in, in just a couple years. Thoughts on the macro here and whether things are about to settle down a little bit? Great question. And so I'd say, you know, just like I started out with, and so take everything I say with a grain of salt here, there is so much uncertainty in ahead of us that none of us can say with any true certainty how things are going to play out over the next six to 12 months, but that's not what we get paid to do. Um, so with that, you know, I think our house view is that ex continue to expect volatility. But in terms of sort of monetary policy, inflation, our view is that the worst is behind us in terms of inflation. And that was sort of 1A in terms of biggest risks, runaway inflation. I think it's starting to come down. That doesn't mean that it's not going to stay or remain elevated. Inflation, particularly here in the US, tends to be more sticky, given how much services uh, accounts for uh, you know GDP growth. And so service inflation tends to be stickier than goods inflation, which are already starting to see come down. But that said, we believe that there will be a softish landing that probably means a mild recession in the first half of 2023 here in the US. 
I think Europe's got some other bigger challenges. They're probably already in a recession. Um, you're going to see some some opportunities on the value spectrum there, I think, uh, in particular. But it's going to be a question of how strong your stomach is because there is some more geopolitical chop, obviously, in that realm of the world. And then seeing how things play out, again, with tensions with China and other things, something to keep an eye on. But China, for example, a market that's too big to ignore and will continue to be a big part of the global ecosystem. And so back to the macro, it's a thematic and deal pickers market. You're going to have to have more bottom up strategy today than maybe you needed or was required five or six years ago. But ultimately, we think rates stay um, elevated above the long term rate through the medium term, but start to come down as we enter uh, 2023. Drew, how can investors find you? Investors can find us at hamiltonlane.com. Uh, there's all sorts of links uh, to to connect with us, and uh, you know we do have some uh, different products in different channels, including institutional, including retail channels uh, as well. And so uh, your brokers. This is back to the point of access. You know the the platforms, the wealth management platforms, for those who are less familiar with us. There's a pretty good chance that some of the platforms you're already invested on through your public market investing activities have heard or have affiliations with us as well. Drew, thanks for joining both Dan, Nathan, and myself. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. On the Tape is a Risk Reversal Media production. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All opinions expressed by me, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, Danny Moses, and any other participants are solely our opinions and should not be relied upon for specific investment decisions. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.